Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we're hanging out. So if you want to get your Bible, go ahead and flip there. That's, that's where we're going to, uh, to be today. And so to catch you up, I, I want to just keep um, trying to set the context for the book as a whole. And so if you think book as a whole, Ephesians, maybe this is the way you could divide the book of Ephesians up. You've got chapters 1 through 3. Where, where Paul is going to define the gospel. So one through three is the gospel defined. This is what the gospel is. This, this is what it means. This is, this is how it works. So God redeems. He reconciles. He does all of these sorts of things. He breathes life into us. He renovates us in the gospel. So this is what the gospel is. Now we get to, to chapters four through six, and the, the theme changes. to now it's not the gospel defined. It's the gospel displayed. And so when you get to chapter four, he, here's how the, the change feels for you. Um, In chapters 1 through 3, there's been one command. And that command was to remember the gospel. So in in three chapters, one command, the command is to remember what he has just defined. So remember what what you once were, what Christ has done, and and what you now are. That's the one command. And so you've got the gospel defined. And now you get to chapter 4, and all of that shifts. Now you have this flood of imperatives. You have this flood of do this. This is how you love your wife. This is how you love your husband. This is how kids respond to parents. Parents respond to kids. This is how we relate to authority. This is how the the words that come out of our mouths should sound. This is how we treat money. And this is our work ethic. Okay, now when you get to chapter 4, here's how this feels as it comes out. Um, If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, here's what you've got uh, Paul saying. He is urging the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they were called. That's chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what he's saying. The way you walk, that the way that you, your gate, the way you walk, the way you do life, that is the display of the gospel. And so for the church, here's the gospel. The gospel creates this community. And the church is that community. And now what the church does is it lives in such a way that it displays the gospel for the world. And so if, if you're going to say out of, out of chapters 1 through 3 that the gospel is powerful, which we ought to believe that, amen? Like we ought to believe the gospel is powerful, that, that it's saved, that the gospel renovates, it reconciles, it does all these things. We believe that. And God is saying to the world, that's true. And if you want to see proof of it, look at my people. Look at the church. Look at how they walk and you see the power of the gospel. Look at how they feel about things, how they think about things, how they treat one another. That is all a display of the gospel. So so here's, when you get to chapter 4, here's the angst. Is that you as the church, you personally, us corporately, we display the gospel in how we walk in the gospel. Okay, that's the angst. So now, through the rest of the book, he starts to define what it is, or how it is that we walk in the gospel. And to walk in the gospel means that we develop this new pattern of life. This new way of living that is consistent with what God has saved us to be. So all these commands in chapter 4 through 6, all the commands, it's not God trying to make you something different. It's leading him in, it's leading you into, these commands lead you into what the different man that God has made you, the different woman that God has made you. So the gospel makes you a different man, and now these commands start to shape you into that man. So these commands are leading you into what God has already made you. Okay, that is chapter 4 through 6. Okay, and when you get to chapter 4, here's the first six verses deal with this issue of unity. So we as the church display the gospel and how we love one another. That's verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Paul urges us, pleads with us to be eager to maintain the unity of the bond of the Spirit. 
Okay, so he's, he's saying that the gospel creates this unity and now you maintain it. This is how you display the gospel. How you love these people in this room is a display of the gospel. How you love your wife is a display of the gospel. Okay, now when you get to verse 7, the theme shifts just a little bit. Step 1 is you display the gospel in unity. Here's going to be step 2 that Paul tells us to take here. You take your next step in the walk when you, when you display the gospel. 1, in unity. Step 2 is in your diversity. I think about the diversity in this room. Like the grace of God, I mean this multicolored grace of God shines into a church and creates in the church these varied gifts, this varied character, these varied personalities that are sitting in this room, right? I mean, you've got some of you that are, are crazy outgoing. And some of you start sweating if you get in front of three people, right? I mean, we've got all these varied personalities in this room. And that is the grace of God shining, this multicolored grace of God shining into the church, creating a multicolored, gifted people. Just a variety of gifted people that that he's saying, you use those God-given gifts for my glory, for the glory of God and for the good of the church. That's where we're going in, in these seven, eight, nine verses. Okay, so we'll start back in high school for me. Y'all remember those days? Getting fuzzy for some of us, right? Gets harder and harder to remember those, right? And the older we get, right, the better we once were. I know that's for sure. Okay, so you're not going to believe this, probably. But I was the quarterback on our high school football team. Okay, now we were 3A Oklahoma, right? I mean, so we're in the middle of nowhere. Okay, yeah, you get the point. Okay, so I played quarterback on offense, and I played safety on defense. So, I mean, you've you got the sort of team that you're out there the whole time. I mean, that's, that's our team. Okay, so now when, when I was a junior and a senior, we, we had pretty good teams both of those years. We made it to the state semifinals in the playoffs two years in a row. Lost heartbreakers both years, right? Like I'm still angry when I think about it. And so uh, my senior year, I'm, I'm the quarterback. We get to the semifinals and we're playing Tuttle High School. Can you feel the rivalry already? Because I can, right? And so, so we're playing Tuttle High School, and uh, I'm the quarterback of our team. The quarterback of the other team is a guy by the name of Jason White. Now, you guys are all Texans. I know. God bless you, right? And, and so, now, now, if you're an Oklahoman, you would, know, you would know that Jason White went on to the University of Oklahoma and won a Heisman Trophy. Okay, so this Jason White. We're playing Tuttle. I'm the quarterback. He's the quarterback. And I didn't know it at the time, but this is my one claim to fame in football. I don't have many, right? I mean, I was a mediocre quarterback, and this is it right here. Okay, so this is my claim to fame that this is my chance. I didn't know this then, but I know this now. To beat a Heisman Trophy winner, right? I mean, life hangs in the balance of this one. Okay, so, so we get out there, and we're up with two minutes left. We're up a touchdown. With two minutes left, they score. They've got the decision, we're going for the tie, right? We'll go to overtime, do that whole thing, or we're going to go for the win. So they're on the two-and-a-half-yard line. They go for the win. Okay, so they call their play. He wrote Jason White, Heisman Trophy winner, rolls out, right? We stop him on the one-yard line. It was a beautiful day. So I just want you to know, your pastor has beat a Heisman Trophy winner, all right? Okay, now the next week, here, here it goes, the next week. Uh, the next week, we're in the semifinals. We're playing a team. Um, they're, they're probably better than we are. They probably had a, a little better team. Um, it's 15 to 13 with two minutes, well, maybe three minutes left in the game. It's down to the end. We, we had a hard time moving the ball on them. Um, and they have this massive running back, about 225 pounds. They're just slamming this guy up the middle, right? 
I mean, we're not having any fun tackling this guy. We're about ready to give up. And so three minutes left in the game. They've driven it all the way down the field. They're on about our 30-yard line. They slam him up the middle again. Big guy. He's just moving the whole pile. Well, I come in as the little safety, right? I'm not hitting the guy. I'm going for the, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the strip. So I, I go for the strip. He's in the middle of the pile, in the crowd, stood up. I go for the strip, strip the ball. Two minutes left in the game right here, right? This is it. This is, I mean, touchdown is written all over this moment. I mean, there's nobody in front of me. And I, I, later on, I went to college in the same fraternity with the quarterback on their team too. And I know I can outrun that guy, right? I, didn't, I couldn't outrun a lot of guys. I could outrun him though. He's the only guy that could have caught me. So I strip the ball. It is touchdown time. I and mean, that's what it is right now. And as soon as I strip it, I kind of I kind of strip it and I'm turning around and I slip to a knee. That's how I felt in that moment too, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the chance to win the game. I, I just hit it. Now, in high school, that you're down, right? And so I'm thinking, I'm down. And rather than just, who cares, let them blow the whistle and call us down, right? I, I hand the ball to the referee. He takes the ball, blows the whistle. Now, this is where it gets really bad, right? I get, I, when I think about this, this 15-second little moment in life, I still get sweaty palms, right? My heart still starts beating fast. And so I give him the ball. He blows the whistle. And not only did I slip down and, and not run, when, when I probably could have gotten away with it, he blows the whistle and gives the ball back to them. This was a sad day for me, right? They, they go on to win the game and, and it's over. Another heartbreaking loss. Okay, now, now here's what, when I think of, of high school football, here's what I love to think about with it. And, and here's why I love just to think of those memories. And it's so fun to get with your old high school friends and talk about those moments, right? The, the reason I love that is because it's a team sport. It takes 11 guys on offense to have a good team and 11 guys on, on defense that all do, that know their job and do their job to have a good team. Your team is as good as your combined 11 guys on each side of the ball doing their thing. You can have LeBron James, but if you don't have the team around him, you're not going to win, right? You've got to have, you've got to have, it, it's a combined 11 on offense, and 11 on defense that win. Okay, now here's why I love that. Because that is so true in the church as well. The church is a team sport. Okay, now let me revisit where we started last week. That the dominant, one of the dominant themes in our culture is consumerism. That we come and we consume things. So we're not playing, we're in the stands consuming. Like we're watching. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of this 80-20 principle. Anybody ever heard of that? So, so your 80-20 principle, if you're a school teacher, it means this. That 20% of your kids give you 80% of the problem. I was one of those 20, right? So you are too, right? And, and so 20% of your kids give you 80% of the problem. In church world, here's what it means. That 80% of the work in a church is done by 20% of the people. 80% of the work, 20% of the people. And just from observation, I think that probably holds true in most churches. That that's about what your ratio turns out to be. But let me ask you this. Is that biblical I mean, is it biblical for, for 80% of the people in a church to do 20% of the work of a church? And, and here's, I don't think it is. I, I think it cuts right across the grain of what the Bible would say, this is how a church functions. 
it would cut right across the grain of how the Bible would say, this is your role in a church. This is your God-given giftings and use those in a church. That it should not be 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. It should be 100% of the work shared between 100% of the people. That's, that's, the, that's what we're gifted and that's the, the biblical picture of how a church operates. That this whole idea of this consumer, of I'll walk in and I'll watch them bleed, sweat, and work out there. And I'll sit in the stands with a hot dog in one hand and a Coke in the other and be the best critiquer on the planet. That is totally foreign to the Bible, right? I mean, the idea of they're the idiots playing, we're, we're, we're the wise ones in the stands. I mean, if you go to the Cowboys game, that's what you get, right? But that is not the idea of the church. The church is we are all on the field. We are a team that everybody has a role and we are stepping into and using our God-given gifts in that role for the glory of God and the good of the church. That's where Paul's going in this passage. That this is a team sport. There are no consumers allowed in the thing called the church. Now, now there, there is a thing that's allowed. Consumers is allowed when you take it to a football field and, and you're going to take it to the stands. Yeah, consume all you want there. But this is not a foot, I mean, this is a team sport where everybody is involved, has a role on the team, that if you don't do the role, the team does not win. That's the idea. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 7. Here's where we start, verse 7, chapter 4. Paul says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me stop on the first um, four words. But grace was given. Now, when the Bible uses the word grace, it, it could mean a couple of different things. Um, there's something that is known as common grace. And common grace is the grace that every human being, just for the benefit of being a human being on planet Earth, gets. Common grace is we woke up today on a planet that was just close enough to the sun that we didn't freeze to death and just far enough from the sun that we didn't burn up to death, right? Or we didn't burn to death. Now, sometimes we put that to the test in the summer here. Like, I, I know that. But, but that's common grace, right? That, that we are on a planet that is positioned perfectly. Common grace is, in Matthew 5, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is a 75-degree spring day. Common grace is a sunrise, a sunset. That, that's common grace. So, so there's an idea of common grace on every human being, just by nature of you being a human being. Okay, but then you, you can move on to that. And if you're a child of God in here, if you are part of the family of God, there's something called saving grace. And saving grace is a special work of God in the gospel where it's not just a common thing that everybody has. It is a specific work of God where he comes in and he reconciles. He redeems. He makes new. He renovates. Hey, close your eyes and let me read this passage for you. This, this is the saving grace of God. And just listen to this. Just close your eyes and listen to, to these words that Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 2. When he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated from the people of God. You're separated, alienated. He goes on to say, you're strangers to the covenants of promise. There is no promise of God that applies to you. That, that comes in Christ and through the gospel. So, so we're separated from all the promises of God. It says we have no hope and no God. Here is saving grace. Verse 13. But now 
in Christ, you who were once far off, no hope, no God, separated, alienated, strangers, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to look up at me. That's saving grace. Isn't that precious? That you have been redeemed, brought near, put into the family of God, adopted. That's saving grace. Okay, now now here's what saving grace does. Saving grace is the basis of our unity. So the reason Paul can say in the first six verses, maintain unity, is because the Spirit in the gospel, God in the gospel, created unity for us. That, That we all, there is no distinction in the gospel between man and woman. There's no distinction in race. There's no distinction in economic situations. In the gospel, we all have the, the, last na- the same last name. We all are in the family of the redeemed. That is your last name if you are in the gospel, if you're in Christ. We have the same last name, the same dad. Puts us on the same playing field as brothers and sisters in Christ. So it creates this unity. But here's what saving grace doesn't do. It, it creates unity, but it doesn't create uniformity. Saving grace does not put us all on tandem bikes, right? It doesn't put us all on an assembly line where we all get the same body, all get the same wills, all get the same paint job. It doesn't do that. Saving grace creates unity, but it leaves and it, and it creates and it gives uniformity, right? Like it, it doesn't make us all the same. And so this is where you get this last idea of grace. You've got serving grace where God comes in and he graciously gifts people. Okay, so it creates all this diversity in the church. It creates some of us that we are great at bringing people in. People come in our house and they know that that is our house too. I mean, we just have the gift of hospitality. So we've got all these gifts that the Holy Spirit and and God brings into a church through grace and gifts to them. Okay, so it's this idea of God graciously gifts the church. He graciously gives gifts. Okay, now this is where you pick it up. Look at verse 11 and you see some of these gifts play out. That, that God gives gifts to each believer. Okay, so, so look at verse 11. In, in verse 11, you've got some are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, pastors, teachers. And, and so here's the idea. That, that God comes in and he graciously gives gifts to every one of us. Okay, look at me right here. This is what this means. That every believer, every follower of God has a gift. You, if you're a follower of God, you've been redeemed by the gospel. You have gifts that God has graciously given you. Some apostles, some, some, all these different things. Now, when you look in the Bible, here's what you're going to see. The the gifts that God gives, they're varied in sorts. There's a variety of different kinds of them. Um, There's at least five different places that speak of gifts, and they list over 20 in the Bible. Now, none of them are exhaustive. So the Bible doesn't give like this exhaustive list of here's A to Z, the gifts that you could have. So it just gives samplings throughout the scriptures on various gifts, spiritual gifts, these special endowments, special things that God gives to his people according to his design for his glory and for the good of the church. He gives a varied sort of them. Across this room, there's a varied sort of spiritual gifts in here. Okay, so he gives a varied sort of them. And and listen, some of us are toes. Some of us are hands, some of us are wrists, some of us are elbows, some of us are necks, some of us are backbones. We've got all different gifts that make up the body of Christ in this room. All different kinds. And listen, now here's what's the tendency when you think of the sort of gifts that people have. Here's your tendency. 
on a team, there are linemen. And you know what? A prideful lineman, or let's take a humble lineman first. A humble lineman is grateful when he blocks, loves to block, loves it when the back scores, loves it when the team wins, and doesn't care who gets the interview afterwards. A prideful lineman loves it when he blocks, doesn't care if the back scores, doesn't care if the team wins, and wants the interview afterwards. So if you're pr- like prideful in your gifts, th- then you're going to get really jealous really quickly that you don't have something else. You're not going to be happy that you're a leg, or that you're an arm, or that you're an elbow. You're going to want to be something else. But when you're humble in it, you're thankful that when you look across a room like this, that God has gifted us all in different ways. You're thankful that God has matched you an elbow into a forearm, into a wrist, into a hand, so we can function properly. So he gives an assortment of gifts, a varied sort of them. Okay, and there's a varied measure of them. Okay, now, now look at it, the varied measure in verse 7. That, that each one of us have them. Okay, so you've got each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So, so the measure of Christ's gifts means this, that if you're an elbow and somebody else is an elbow, they might be a better elbow than you. Um, if you're a leg and somebody else is a leg, their leg might be able to kick a ball 50 yards and your leg might be able to kick it 30 yards. But listen, we aren't responsible for being the best leg or the best elbow or the best whatever you are that makes up the body. You're responsible to have the best leg you can have. That's your role and my role. So if we're prideful, we get angry that we can't kick it as far. We can't do as much. But if we're, if we're humble, we're grateful that God gives his measure to all these different people in a varied sort and a varied sum, right? Okay, it goes on. Another general principle of gifts, that Christ gives gifts. Gifts are given in Christ. And this is going to be the, the idea in verses 8 through 10 here. So look down and read this with me. Starting at the end of verse 7, he's going to say that our giftings are according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Sounds a little bit cryptic, right? Like what in the world is he saying? Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, this is the idea that he is getting at here. Now, if you take this back into the context, here's the context that these people would have been thinking about. That when a general would lead his army out and that general would conquer a foreign foe, when that would happen, that general and that army would bind that foreign foe that they just defeated, they would bind them and they would lead them back to the capital city. And they would take all the spoil of that city that they just captured and they would bring that back to the capital city with them. And when they got back to the city, there would be a celebration where the army around this general and the people of the capital city would come together and they would celebrate the fact that the king has won, that the army has won. And in that celebration, the king would give the gifts of that spoil, the gifts of that bounty to his people. And Paul is saying, let me give you the reality back behind that. That General Jesus is our commander. And General Jesus, he conquered the foe, right? And General Jesus, he left heaven. Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a human and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. And so you've got Jesus that has descended 
And he walked in flesh as a human being, died on the cross. Listen, his way of conquering was not with a sword, but with a cross. So he comes and he's descended. He conquers his foe in the death and resurrection. And after that, he ascends. And when he ascends with the great enemy, sin, Satan, and death in his train, he leads them to heaven, parades them around, and then the church gathers around and celebrates with the conquering king that has broke the back of our enemy as God gives gifts to his people, the church. That's the picture. That we are given gifts in Christ. Now, now here's going to be the last point in our gifts, a general principle of spiritual gifts, that when we use our spiritual gifts, it is for the glory of God. Gifts are given for the glory of God. So when you use whatever gift you are, if you're a toe, an elbow, or whatever, when you use that gift, it is a way that you show and you display to the world that you have got a good and gracious king that has conquered your enemies, and that has given you good gifts. It is the way that you display the gospel. You using your gifts in the body of Christ for the, for the good of the body is a way you show the gospel to the world. Okay, now that is a general thing in, in spiritual gifts, right? I mean, this is God gives you gifts, every individual, varied sort, varied sum. He's given in Christ for the glory of God. Okay, those are general principles about gifts. Now, okay, there is a specific purpose. Look at verse 11. The gifts he lists here, they are specific. He has got a specific aim with this. So, okay, there is a general idea of these are spiritual gifts. Here's what they are for. And now there is a specific aim that Paul is trying to get at in this passage. Okay, so look at verse 11. Here are the gifts. You've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. God gives gifts to some. Okay, these gifts that he's about to talk about here are given to some so that they can properly and passionately herald the word of God. These gifts are centered on the word. That's what he's talking about here. The gifts that he's highlighting are gifts that center on the word that form the backbone of the church. Okay, so let me explain them here. Let's just walk through these. He's going to say um, that some are apostles and prophets. Okay, now apostles and prophets, they, okay, we'll take uh, uh, prophets first. Prophets were um, the Old Testament mouthpiece of God to his people. So God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, say this to my people. Speaks to Isaiah, say this to my people. Speaks to Moses, say this to my people. So they are the Old Testament mouthpiece of God to speak into the life of the people of God. They wrote scripture. Okay, Old Testament prophets. Uh, In the New Testament, the counterparts are the apostles. Okay, they are the people, they are the mouthpiece of God in the New Testament. They are the people that God uses to write scripture. The apostles are the people that God uses to plant churches. The apostles were the people that God used in a supernatural way in the New Testament to give us the New Testament scriptures. Okay, that's the apostles, that's the prophets. Okay, you come down, uh, evangelists. Okay, now, now there is probably some debate on the evangelist side of it. When we hear the word evangelist, here's what we think. People who are consistently sharing the gospel, which we should all do, and people who do that with a lot of fruit that's associated with it. That's how we would typically talk about evangelists. And I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul means in this. I think it's probably more likely that what he's talking about here when he says evangelists are people that worked hand in hand with the apostles in the New Testament. 
people who worked hand in hand to plant churches, to work, when the apostles would leave and go to another church, they would fill in and be in the stead of the apostles. So you could kind of consider maybe evangelists as the lieutenants or the deputies of the apostles. They are the people who would work in place of the apostles in churches. Okay, so you got the evangelists. But either way, whatever way you fall on it, their job centers around the word of God. Okay, you come down to the last one, the fourth one. You've got pastors. Okay, the word pastor is used one time in the New Testament. Okay, so it has the same idea and imagery as a shepherd, which is used a lot in the New Testament. So you've got a pastor, a shepherd, somebody who cares for and protects the flock. Pastor, bishop, which you can't call me bishop, by the way, all right? That's just where we cross the line. Pastor, bishop, and elder all used interchangeably in the New Testament. All to describe the same person, same job. Pastor, bishop, elder. And so people who lead the church, govern the church, work in the church, equip the church. This is what pastors, leaders, elders, that's, that's what they do. Okay, now he's going to describe one of the primary functions of a pastor. He says, pastors, and then what's that last word? Teachers. So one of the primary, like in the job description of a pastor, at the center of that is you're a teacher. You do a lot of other things as a pastor, but there's nothing more important than properly, effectively teaching the Word of God. That's at the center of the job description. So you can be a teacher and not be a pastor, but if you want to be a pastor, you've got to be a teacher. It's at the center of the job description. This is what you do. You preach the gospel. That's it. Okay, now I want you to know that the what all four of those gifts revolve around, those people, those things revolve around, is heralding the word of God. That's what, it, that's, that's what those people do for the church. And Paul's got a specific bent when he highlights these people in the church. He's got a specific bent for that. That these people, they form the backbone of the church. So you can be a church and not do a lot of things. But you cannot be a church without good preaching. Okay, if, if you don't have good preaching, you might as well call it a country club or whatever you want to call it, but it's not a church. Okay, pastors preach, and churches have to have preaching, getting the word of God into their people. Okay, now, the people of Ephesus would have immediately picked up on this emphasis. Now, think about how the story of the church in Ephesus is, it goes here. In Acts 19, here's how the story unfolds. Paul gets to Ephesus. There are no Christians there. He starts preaching the gospel and trying to plant churches. He goes into the synagogues to start that. They don't like him there. They kick him out of the synagogue. And then he goes and he rents a lecture hall in the city. Just a publicly owned building, kind of like the conference center. He rents the conference center and he starts teaching. And now in the footnote of Acts 19.9, here's what you see in a little footnote down there. A little scribe put this in at some point. It says, he preached from, I think it's like the 4th to the 10th hour is what it says. For like five, six hours a day, he is preaching in the community center. It would have been right in the middle of the day, like from 11 to 4 p.m. He is preaching for five hours a day, every day in the public center. Preaching has always been at the center of a movement of God. That is always it. See, the church today is always looking for like new methods, right? Like how are we going to get people? And the biblical method has always been you preach to get people. You publicly do it and you privately do it. We do it corporately and we do it personally. You preach to get people. And this is, I think, the response that you normally get to that. Are you sure about that? I mean, that's really the deal. I mean, are you sure we don't need a roller coaster in the foyer? Are you sure we don't need a little bear on a tricycle doing tricks out there? 
Are you sure we don't need to set up the circus, right? And the Bible is saying, no, you don't need a bear doing tricks. Movements of God have never been based on tricks. They have been based on people boldly, fearlessly proclaiming the truth. That's what movements of God are built on. And that's what the church is built on. People, these offices, these gifts, that they will boldly, passionately, fearlessly, it doesn't matter if it costs them their job, their life, their whatever, they will boldly proclaim the word of God. That's what the church is built on. That's what it's built around. Okay, so Paul's saying this is the method. And if you don't believe me, watch it work itself out. Now, this is what happens. Five hours a day, lecturing in the community center. You keep reading in Acts chapter 19, revival breaks out. No bear on a tricycle. No roller coaster. Really? Revival breaks out when people corporately and privately start proclaiming the word of God. Okay, now, this is why he emphasizes this. He's saying God gives gifts to the church to herald the word of God, to make sure it's washing over people in the congregation, to make sure it's washing over, the gospel's washing over the people of God. Okay, now he describes um, what these gifts are for. God gives these gifts of heralding the word for a goal. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, these gifts are given. These people are given with a goal in mind. Now look at verse 12. Here's the goal. He gives them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, so that's goal one, to equip the saints. That's what preaching does. If preaching does not create movement, equipping in people, if it does not create that, then it's just talking. It's not preaching. Preaching creates movement in people. It's, it's intended to stir people. It's intended to confront people, to cause repentance in people. That's what preaching is meant to do. And if it doesn't do that, it's not preaching. Preaching causes movement. Okay, so, so he's going to say it's meant to equip the people. Now, I love the imagery of that word equip. In Matthew 4, um, uh, Jesus is going to call John and James. And here's the situation when he calls them. They are, it says they're mending their nets. They just got back from fishing. They're mending their nets after they've been torn up. That word equipping is the same word for mending. Preaching is meant to mend people. It is meant to mend broken people after a week's worth of the world. And can that not break anybody? Can that not cause tears in anybody? That's what preaching does. It is meant to mend people, to restore people, to give passion to people, to help people walk in the way of God. That's what preaching is intended to do, cause movement in people. That same word kind of has the idea of resetting a bone, another way it could have been used. So it has the idea of preaching resets, maybe not your bones, but maybe it resets your brain on a weekly basis, right? On a daily basis. There is not one of us in this room after a week in the world that is not susceptible to believe crazy things. Not a one of us. And preaching is God's ordained thing to sweep over our minds, through our hearts, on a consistent basis for our good, to mend us, to reset us. And look at what you equip for. You see this word? For ministry. That's what we're equipping for. So preaching should equip you to move into ministry. If we've got the 80-20 principle going on here, then we are not doing a good job of preaching. Because it shouldn't be that. 
80-20 should not be the way of the church. This church cannot survive if 20% of the people are doing the work. It will not go. There will be a time when we will cease to be if 20% of the people do all the work here. Preaching is meant to equip you to be missionaries in the world and ministers in your family, good pastors in your families, in your neighborhood, and in this church. That's what it's meant to do, to equip for the work of ministry. Now look at that last word. I want to warn you on this one. It says the work of ministry. Ministry is not easy work. Now I know I work a day a week. I know that. Maybe even a half day, right? So here's what I'm telling you. Ministry for all of us in this room is hard, hard bloody, painstaking, get your hands dirty work. That's what it is. I, I, I kind of um, equate it back to this image that I saw in Saving Private Ryan. Bloody, right? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an accurate depiction of war, right? And so you've got a guy that gets shot and his friends see that he is bleeding severely. And so they cover the wound. Somebody goes and gets the tweezers that can clamp off the artery or vein that has been severed. They open that wound back up and they stick the tweezers in to find the artery that they have to clamp or this guy's going to die. That is ministry. Your hands are dirty. You've got tweezers that you're sticking in wounds. And for the glory of God and their good, you're trying to find the arteries to clamp to save lives. That's ministry. And that is what God calls every one of us in here to in your families, in your neighborhood, in this church, that is your role to play in people's life. That's your role. That's not just me. It's not just two or ten. It is all of us. That is your role. That's what preaching should move you to do, to be the guys that are willing to reach into wounds and do whatever it takes to save lives. That's ministry. Okay, now here's the other thing he says preaching does. Preaching equips the body, and preaching, look down below, next phrase, it builds the body. Preaching is intended to build up the body of Christ. That's what it's meant to do, to build the body. Okay, so proper preaching creates movement. It creates growth in the body. It builds the body into something that's healthy. That's preaching. That's what it's supposed to do here. Okay, now now let's look at what it says about it. It's going to explain it. All right. Okay, now if you look in the Bible, you've got several imageries of the church. You've got a, a bride, beautiful picture. You've got a building that's sometimes the imagery of a church, and you've got the body, right? And so this body imagery is saying that we all have our part to play. We all have a function here. We all have a role. It's a team sport. And so he's saying that preaching builds that team, builds that body. Okay, now he's going to describe what a healthy place looks like what a healthy church looks like, what, what it means to be a, a place that has been built well. Okay, now look at, look at some of these descriptions. Look at verse 13. He says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Okay, so he's going to say that part of being a mature place, a built place, a proper place, is us having unity. This was last week. The, I mean, just look around this room. These are the people that are going to hurt you severely. These are them. Just give it time. Get to know them well enough. It's coming. And these are also the people that God has called you to love in the midst of that. Okay, that's what a mature place looks like. If you run, if you run from, from those moments, when, when a verbal knife is thrown across the room at you, lands in you, if you run in those moments, 
This place is not built well. It's not healthy. If we respond with the gospel, that's what a healthy place does. That's what preaching... So so let me ask you, are you growing in health there? Because we are just as healthy as each of our team members. Are you growing in health in how you defend, protect, pursue, value unity? Responding with the gospel. Are your rights the most important thing in your life? Or is unity more important than your rights? Right? Okay, so, so he goes down and he says, this is the next one. And the knowledge of the Son of God. So a place that is being built well, that's healthy, has a good knowledge of the Word of God. A good knowledge of what, what the doctrine of the Bibles teach, right? It's a good knowledge of Scripture. Every person in this room is a theologian. It's just a matter of whether or not you're a good one or not. Daddies, you teach every day about God, about family, about marriage, about the church. You teach that every day in the things you say and don't say in your family. Mamas, you do too. So it's just a matter if we're teaching good things or bad things. Biblical things or not biblical things. So we're all theologians. So, so we've got to make sure a healthy place is built around a solid knowledge of the word. That's why we've got to make sure we preach it well and teach it well, that we get it out to you. So it's built around this knowledge of the word. Now, some people like to, uh, like, kind of like to pit knowledge against like application, right? Like um, you're going to know too much and you're going to get prideful and then you're going to start slamming everybody around. Knowledge is not an enemy of, of life or application. They work hand in hand. This graph right here, I think it'd be very beneficial for you just to keep in your mind with how knowledge and your holiness work themselves out. As you grow in knowledge, you grow in holiness. Those two things work together. And the more knowledge you get, the more you start to see and understand the Bible, the more you see that your life diverges from it. And that divergence, that that separation between those two lines is Romans 7. It's where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that, that I'm just jacked up. And that's basically his deal. The things I would love to do, I just can't seem to do them. And the things I hate, those are the things I seem to do a whole lot of. So knowledge helps you grow in holiness. So a mature place, a built place, is a place that has solid knowledge of the word of God. Okay, he goes on, this next one. He uses this idea of of maturity. Look what he says here. To mature manhood. A healthy place, a place built, a good, solid, healthy body is a mature body. That we're growing in maturity. Um... When, when I was growing up, I remember this moment of looking around, probably six, seven, eight years old, thinking this. Looking around at 30-year-old couples, 40, I, just people that were married, doing life. I remember thinking in my head, like, they've got life together. I mean, they know what they're doing. I mean, they, they display a little bit of wisdom. I mean, they, they've got this thing down. Now, there was a point in my life where I saw that that was a total, I mean, that was just idiocracy on my part, Right? And I think that settled at my 10-year reunion. Y'all remember your 10-year reunion? At my 10-year reunion, here's what really hit home. That those same 13-year-old boys just have 25-year-old bodies. And those same 13-year-old boys now have 30-year-old bodies. And those same 13-year-old boys can just as easily have 50-year-old bodies. Isn't it a shame when it's a 13-year-old and a 50-year-old body? And so God is saying a healthy place doesn't have 13-year-olds that are adults. 
It has mature men who are adults, mature women who are adults, people who are growing in maturity. Now, he's going to describe four things. This is how we'll close it today. He describes four things that describes what maturity is. Now, I just want to ask you these questions. Are you this? I mean, where do we need to grow into maturity in some of these areas? Okay, so he's going to list four things here. Look at verse 13 at the end of it. He, he says, this is what it means to be a mature man. A mature man is not, it's not how many girls you have on your hips, how, many, how much alcohol you can consume, how much you can be, bench press, how much you, or who you can beat up. That is not the measure of a man or a woman. That's not the measure. Okay, here's what he's going to say, that maturity, it, it, this is what it leads to. It's this idea of, of that you are filled with God, that you are filled with the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. That's maturity. There is a Christ-likeness. That's maturity. That you look like Christ in the way you respond to people, in the way you love your wife, in the way you treat people. There's a maturity. There's a Christ-likeness there. So let me ask you the question. Are you mature like that? Is there a Christ-likeness that you have? Or do we need to grow in that area? I mean, do we need to grow in Christ-likeness, in our humility, in our gentleness, in our patience, in our love, joy, peace? I mean, do we need to grow in Christ-likeness in those areas? Okay, he, he defines it this way as stability. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer, he's going to use four kind of pictures here. So that we may no longer be children. There are some ways in the Bible that we're encouraged to be like children, like in faith. We're encouraged to be like children. But we are not encouraged to be like children in our ignorance. We're not. Like, I love my two-year-old, but she has no idea that two plus two equals four. You know what I'm saying? And there's some of us that should know that, that don't. And God is saying, you need to grow. You don't need to be like a kid in that. You need to have discernment. You need to have wisdom. You need to grow up into Christ who is wisdom. Okay, look at what he goes on to say. Use this next imagery. Tossed to and fro by the waves. He uses this imagery of a ship like in the middle of a hurricane, right? Where you've got a small ship that's just getting tossed backwards and forwards, getting bashed and beat up. And he's saying, you don't need to, be, you need to be stable. You need to anchor your life into Jesus where there's stability. Okay, he goes on to use, use this next one. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. Have you ever opened up your car door? And at that moment, wind has rushed in and blown something important out. And you do that whole thing where you're trying to step on it. And you know, you're doing that whole, whole thing, right? That's the picture of this guy, this lady. That every new little doctrine, every new little fad that comes about, they chase it. I mean, they are that person trying to step on it, trying to find it. When God is saying, I am your foundation. I am it. I am where you build your life. You do not have to chase. I have already chased you and found you. You need to live in me. That's what you need to do. Okay, and then he uses this last one. He says, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he just uses this imagery of the fool, right? I mean, the fool is the person who builds their life on sand. And when the wind and the rain come, blows their life down. And the wise man is the one who builds their life on the rock, on good, solid, biblical teaching, on the Bible. And they build their life there. So when, not if, the wind and rain comes, they stand. 
Okay, that's the picture, stability. Are, are you there? Are, are you just here one day and gone tomorrow? You're in one day, out tomorrow? I mean, are you the guy flirting with the gospel and not walking in the gospel? Or are you the guy that is, is steadily and consistently walking in it? Okay, th- then he goes on. He says this. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth. This is a mark of maturity, that we speak the truth in love. And this cuts both ways. Now now catch this. Here's wave one. Wave one, we speak the truth in love. We actively speak it. That is a part of being mature, that we actively speak truth wrapped in love. So let me ask you this. Do you do that? And I'm not saying, do you just speak truth? I'm saying, is your truth wrapped in a genuine love for people? If all you do is speak truth, you kill people. That's what you do. But when you put truth in love, it takes some difficult to swallow medicine and puts it in a good flavor, a drinkable flavor. Do you put truth, is love wrapped around your truth in such a way that people around you can drink it? Or are you the person that people want to avoid? So do we speak the truth in love? So that's way one. We speak and love cushions and puts truth in a good flavor for people to listen to and hear. Because it's wrapped in a genuine love for them. And here's the other way it cuts. It cuts the way of allowing people to speak truth into your life. Can you do that? Daddies, can your wife speak into your life without you flying off the handle? Wives, can your husband correct and gently love you in that way without you throwing your radar? I mean, just, it's over. Conversation ceases. Kids, can your parents correct you? Parents, can you be corrected by your kids? That takes some humility, doesn't it? So it cuts both ways. Speaking the truth in love this way and receiving it that way. The grace of God that leads to growth in your life oftentimes comes through difficult and hard words. And we would all be a fool if we neglect those. So we need to be faithful to invite people into our lives to speak truth in. Okay, and this is the last way, and we'll be done with this one. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you want to know what it means to have a body, a church that is healthy, that is built, here's what it means. That the people of God are using their gifts for the glory of God and the good of the church. That's what it means. That you're using your gifts for the good of God, the glory of the church. So are you doing that? Let me just ask it in a very straightforward way. Are you today using your gifts to benefit the church? Are you doing that? Are you sitting in the stands, Coke in this hand, right? Hot dog in this one getting popcorn at halftime and being a good critiquer? Or are you bleeding, sweating, clamps in hand in the work of ministry for the sake of the body of Christ? Are you doing that? Are you giving your life away through your God-given gifts to the church? It would be sinful for me as a teacher of this text to allow you to think as you walk out of here that you can be in God's will for your life and not be doing that. It'd be sinful for me to do that. 
If you want to walk, if you want to display the gospel, that's what's at stake. If you want to display the gospel, then you've got to find where it is that you're going to plug your gifts into and give your life away to the church. The glory of God is at stake. We display the gospel by using our diversity for God's glory and the good of the church. So are you doing that? Okay, now in your car, or in your seat there is this card. And we'll kind of take it with this and, and be done. On that card, um, you'll see on the back there that we've listed several different opportunities and ways that you can serve and that we need people to serve the body of Stonegate, the church at Stonegate. So I'm just going to kind of list off a couple of these and read a couple of the descriptions here. Um, okay, so if you think preschool, the preschool needs assistance. They need assistant director, those sorts of things. They need a couple of teachers. They need some snack volunteers. They need two sets of kind of setup helpers. They need some help there. Okay, children, they need six small group leaders right now. They're six short. Um, they need a worship leader before August kind of gets around that can do that part. They need um, a possible director and a possible assistant in the near future. So there's some serious needs in the children's area. Okay, if you look at uh, the, uh, the junior high, um, they've got some serious needs. They're about to start uh, kind of a, a junior high thing on Sunday morning. They're going to need help for. So that's a way to plug in. Youth is in pretty good shape right now. Okay, you keep looking down, um, kids check in. They need help at kids check in, making sure all those kids are checked in, taken care of when they come in. Greeting, making sure that when people walk in, people feel welcome and they, they know that they're loved here. Okay, that's a communal effort for us to do that. It's a great way to serve. Um, you've got uh, things like on the setup, teardown teams. Um, people come here at 7.30 every morning on the field playing at 7.30 so you can have church at 10.30. They need roughly 10 people to kind of help in that. Okay, now, now listen to how this has worked. And, and, but there's a lot of other areas too. There's ways in the foyer out here to set up um, home group table, coffee table, all those stuff. All that people do every week, week in, week out for you. Okay, now I'll, let me throw this out and then we'll wrap it up here. We started with 40 people, not eight and a half, nine months ago. 40 people. We're up right now at about nine months in to about somewhere between 270 and 300, depending on the day. And let me tell you what's happened over that nine-month period. 40 people have done 90% of the work. And so I just want to gently encourage you to jump off of those stands, jump into the, into the field, and jump in with us and pull rope with us, because we need you. We really do. Th those guys are going to die of a heart attack if they don't get help, right? And so don't let them die of a heart attack. For God's glory and for the good of the church, don't let them do that. Let's pray. I, I love this picture that uh, one of my favorite teachers, when he was teaching this text, he used to end his service. He said that it's, kind of from him to the church, he said, this is what this feels like for him. He said, at the end of the day, this is how I feel about the church. I am a shy, shy man, and the church is a beautiful woman. And it's difficult just to walk up to the beautiful woman and just to tell her that I love you. I mean, that's a difficult thing, he said. And he said, God is so gracious in, in putting a gift in my hands that I can walk up to the beautiful woman and not even have to say a word 
but I can give her my gifts and give my life away in sacrificial service to her. And I think that's the picture of, of Philippians or uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16. I think that's the picture. That God has graciously given you gifts to give to the beautiful, to the bride of Christ, the beautiful woman, to give your life away in sacrificial service to her. So I just want to encourage you to do that, to be that, to run after that. This body, this is a team. We're just as good as the combined effort of our team. So may God give us great grace in growing into a strong, healthy, equipped body. God, you are so gracious. God, we love you. God, I thank you for Christ, who has won the victory, who has paraded the foes, our enemies, before you, before us, and God, before the church. And he has given the great gifts, the spoils of that victory to us in gifts. So God, I thank you for that. God, I pray that we as the church would be faithful to use those gifts, to give our lives away through those gifts for your glory and the good of the church. So God, I pray that. I beg you to do it. I beg you to work that in us. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up as we sing last song?